Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 2. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Break asunder, O Lord, we beseech thee the chains of our sins that taking upon us thy light yoke and easy burden, we may serve thee with fear and reverence all the days of our life. Wherefore we say, glory be to the Father, who hath begotten the Son today, that is, eternally, and hath set him as as king and heard his desire as that of a priest. Glory be to the Son, who desireth the Father for us, and possesseth the nations for an inheritance unto the utmost parts of the earth. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who is the blessedness wherewith blessed are all they that put their trust in him, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, way back in November, we began a series of exhortations on the order and content of our worship service. And this morning, we are going to conclude that series, though, of course, there is always more to be said about worship. Just by way of review, we said that there are five headings under all that we do in worship falls, and you can find each of those kind of in bold and underlined in your bulletin. Uh, For mnemonic purposes, uh, those five headings all start with the letter C. Uh, They are the call to worship, the confession, the consecration, communion, and the commission. These five movements describe how God renews his covenant with his people. It is a pattern that we find throughout the Old Testament, and in Christ, those types and shadows are fulfilled and transformed, such that now we observe the spirit of the law, the offering of ourselves as a living sacrifice, and not the old covenant letter, the offering of animal sacrifices. Jesus is the one who makes everything that we do in worship acceptable to God. There are many things that we fall short of, things that we are ignorant of, ways that we misunderstand and misapply the scriptures. But when we by faith offer to God the sacrifices that he requires, he accepts them as a father accepts the imperfect works of his children. 
More than that, God delights to receive our worship, our offerings, when they are offered to him in a spirit of thankfulness and joy. Worship exists to glorify God and to make us satisfied in him. And the way that we find this satisfaction is by obeying him. Obeying him when he says things like, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing, Psalm 100 verse 2. Or, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him all the earth, Psalm 96, 9. Worship is where God wants to make us happy, deeply happy. He does this by giving us himself, for God is the happy God. He is the fullness of all beatitude and blessedness. He is boundless joy. He is the fountain of all goodness. David says in Psalm 16:11, "In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." So every Lord's Day, we gather together to give to God our entire selves. We give him our sins. We give him our praise, our prayers, our tithes, our offerings. We present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And in return, God always raises us from the dead. He gives life and healing to our souls and bodies. He feeds us. He refreshes us. He renews us in him. That is what worship is all about, and it is all a gracious gift from God. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. These are the words of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the different roles that you've assigned to us as husbands and wives, as men and women, and we ask that you would make us both to be obedient to your word in every detail, that we might proclaim to the world the glorious mystery of Christ's love and union with the church. We ask for your spirit now in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.
Well, last week we saw that it is the chief duty of a husband to love his wife like Christ loves the church, and that just as Christ is the head and therefore responsible for the body, so also the husband is the head and therefore responsible for his wife. This authority of headship is to be embraced and wielded for the good of the woman. You know that it is true headship when it is wearing a crown of thorns that affects salvation for the body. Uh, one of the ways you can know if you are doing this well as a husband is by simply asking your wife, how is your soul? How is your body? Do you feel nourished in the Lord? Do you feel cherished and important to me? The goal for a husband is to hear his wife speak as the woman does in Song of Solomon 1-2. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. That is the voice of the church to Christ. And those are the words that we want to proceed honestly from the mouth of our wife. And that is a very high bar. So the chief duty of a husband is love. This is what God commands of us. And that's what we talked about last week. Uh, this morning, we turn now to look at the duties of wives. So what does God command of the woman in marriage? Now, uh, some people might think that this is a rather unnecessary sermon, right? Uh, isn't her job just to love her husband back, love her husband too? Well, uh, yes, love is essential to the woman's duty as a Christian. We are all called to love our neighbor and to love even our enemy, but that is not what God commands in Ephesians 5 or in our text of 1 Peter 3. Instead, there is a consistent emphasis in Scripture on a different virtue, a different duty. And that is to honor, reverence, and submit to her head. The woman's chief duty in marriage is to honor, reverence, and submit to her husband. If we were to look back at Ephesians 5 and note the imperatives Paul gives, we would see that the, commands to, uh, the command to, husband, to husbands is to love. But wives are commanded to what? Uh, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then if you go down to verse uh, 33 in Ephesians 5, it says, uh, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So you see this consistent parallel uh, here and in our sermon text, that husbands are always commanded to love, and wives are consistently commanded to submit to and respect their husband. Now, I think it's good for us to ask a question, why this difference? Why this difference? Well, whenever God tells a specific group of people to do a specific thing, uh, you just know it is for a good reason, and it's usually because that group naturally struggles to do it. They need to be told, they need to be reminded. For example, if you continue on in Ephesians, the next verse, the next chapter, Ephesians 6, says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Of course, children should love and respect their mother and father, but the thing that they most need to be reminded of and commanded to do by God is to obey. That is their chief duty as children. 
The same goes for the commands towards masters and servants. Servants are commanded to be obedient from the heart. It says in Ephesians 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Likewise, masters are told to stop threatening and being harsh to their servants, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. So whatever it is that God commands a specific class of people to do, be it husbands or wives or children or servants or masters, it is a command given both because it is essential and because we naturally struggle to do it. It does not come natural to love your wife sacrificially and to put her needs above your own. It does not come naturally to children to obey their parents right away, all the way, with a good attitude. That has to be taught. It's hard for servants to not resent and envy their masters. It's hard for masters to not demean and look down upon their servants. So we have to trust that scripture is uniquely suited to correct our sinful tendencies. And for the woman who is a wife, her struggle is going to be to genuinely honor, respect, and submit to her husband. And that is why Paul goes out of his way to command this. Command this reverent submission as the chief duty of a wife. Okay. Uh, now, as soon as you tell wives to submit to their husbands in the Lord, uh, the, the immediate response uh, is for someone to say, well, what about when my husband is being uh, irresponsible, not respectable, when he's being abusive or not loving me the way Christ loves the church? What then? So this is, this is the, uh, the mind of uh, the natural fleshly man. It always wants to jump to exceptions as soon as it hears the rule. So we do have to answer this because there are, there are of course, uh, abusive men, uh, irresponsible men, uh, unrespectable men in the world. So what do you do? Well, let's start with uh, the really clear cases. In cases of, say, a domestic violence or a criminal act, of course, the woman should go to the police. She should tell the elders. She should seek justice and protection from harm. Uh, she does not need to submit to that kind of violence. A scripture permits and even commands this in many cases. You can uh, see that in Exodus chapter 21. But even then, even when a woman seeks justice against her husband, it must be done with a spirit of submission to the Lord and a desire to seek the good of the husband, even if that good is you know, sitting in a prison cell. But setting those criminal cases aside, our sermon text gives us instructions that are specific to wives who have disobedient husbands. This might be a marriage to an unbeliever or to a husband who just doesn't take his faith seriously and is not leading in the home. What do you do when your husband is not loving you the way Christ loves the church. That is what 1 Peter 3 is going to directly address. So let's get into our text, starting in verse 1. It begins with, likewise. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, anytime we see one of these words, these words like therefore or likewise, we need to back up and see what the context is. What is the connection point? And if we look back at chapter 2, we would see that this topic of submission arises in the context of Christians being persecuted. The whole letter of 1 Peter is written to the elect exiles scattered throughout the empire. 
And so Peter is giving instruction in how to relate to the unbelieving world. And he is especially concerned with the church's witness and reputation. Because, remember, whatever the church does reflects upon Christ. He says this in 1 Peter 2, um, 11 to 14. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation, and I should just note, conversation here just means you know, your behavior, your conduct, your manner of life. Uh, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then we are given, in verse 13, the first uh, submit command, the first group of people that we are, as Christians, told to submit to says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So that is the likewise connection point. That is the beginning of the likewise that Peter is referring to when he then says, wives, you also should submit. So Christians are to submit to the civil magistrate. A few verses later, it'll talk about servants submitting to their masters, not only to the good and gentle, but it says also to the crooked. And then we are told, likewise, wives, submit to your own husbands. So that's the, the logical flow. The thread that ties all of these different kinds of submission together is the purpose for which we are to submit. And that is given in verse 12, as it says, so that they, the unbelieving world, may glorify God in the day of visitation. We could say this another way. It's so that unbelievers would see how Christians relate to the government. They would see how servants relate to their masters. They would see how wives relate to their husbands and conclude that God is among you. It takes faith, supernatural faith, to submit to ungodly men. It forces you to trust that God really is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and all authority comes from him. And that is the testimony that Peter wants for the church. So a wife's submission to her husband is a good work, a good work that God has prepared in advance for her to do. And when she does this, the world stands back and marvels. The wife shows the world what the church's submission to Christ is looks like. Now, uh, this likewise connection to submitting to civil governments and uh, servants submitting to masters gives us some really useful material for understanding where the limits are. What are the limits of submission? When, it, when is it appropriate to actually disobey your, your superior? Where is the line? Um, this, is, this is a huge topic, a huge a topic that deserves its own sermon, uh, but I'll give you the very short version. The short version is that Christians are to submit to the lawful commands of the government, and if we are ever commanded to sin, we must disobey. All authority comes from God, no human authority is absolute, and when an authority commands us to sin, we must not comply. In marriage, you could imagine a scenario uh, between a conversation between Ananias and Sapphira. You know, uh, your spouse wants you to lie or steal or cover up some crime. Uh, you should not submit. You should not go along. You should, you know, tell the police where the body is. But what about when a husband is not commanding you, strictly speaking, 
to sin. He's just being a bad husband. He's just being, uh, you know, a bad head. He's being irresponsible, making your life difficult. Well, this is uh, the category of husbands that Peter is thinking of when he gives us uh, the rest of verse 1. So verse 1 continues, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, so that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So what is Peter saying here? Well, he's saying that if you are a wife with a disobedient husband, your first and most potent weapon is to win him without a word to win him by your submission, not by using his sin as an excuse to not submit, which is how most people think. My husband's not loving me the way Christ loves the church, therefore I don't have to do what God commands me to do. And this is the opposite of what Peter is commanding. This is because a wife's submission is ultimately in the Lord and to the Lord. And the Lord is the one with the power to change things. And so submission to even an ungodly husband is how a wife entrusts herself to God. It is an act of faith. And it is how she gives room for God to work, either to take vengeance and strike him down as God did to Nabal, or to soften his heart and convert him as Paul hopes for in 1 Corinthians 7. There uh, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the wife by the husband. So if you are a woman with a disobedient husband, God still says, submit to him and submit to him to win him without a word. Uh, Many women think that they can change their husband and they think that they can change their husband by talking to him, arguing with him, nagging, yelling, and the like. But Peter says, a disobedient husband may be won without a word when he beholds your chaste conversation a self-controlled mouth, a self-controlled conduct. That is what godly submission looks like for a wife. Chaste behavior, not being argumentative, not maximizing small things, seeking the good of your husband and household with all diligence. One of the best examples of what godly submission looks like to a really wicked husband is this story of Nabal and Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Um, If if you know the story, I'll just give you the summary of it. Uh, David's men have been protecting Nabal's land. Nabal is this very wealthy man, and David sends to Nabal for assistance. Nabal dishonors David. He rewards evil for David's good. And David is provoked to wrath. He tells all his men, you know, strap on your sword. We're going to go slaughter these guys. But righteous Abigail hears of this. And she goes behind her husband's back. She does not tell him what she is doing. And she prepares food and help for David's men. And then she goes and she falls down and begs David for mercy on her husband's behalf. She says, let his crime be upon me. The godly wife intercedes for her wicked husband. That is the portrait of godly submission in a hard circumstance. If you continue on in the story, after uh, David spares Nabal's life, it says, But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. Uh, 
If your husband obeys not the word, God says, don't avenge yourself. You know, don't, don't poison his food. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Abigail is a beautiful portrait of godly submission. It takes faith to trust God when your husband is disobedient, and the sinful tendency is to excuse your bad behavior by blaming him, to argue and fight instead of quietly submit. But this is what God commands of wives. And when you do this, Christ will judge. God will take vengeance in due time. Your job is to obey God regardless of what your husband is doing. That is who you are going to answer, answer to on judgment day. On judgment day, it will not suffice to blame your husband for your sins. A bad husband is never an excuse for your disobedience. He may be responsible for you, but you are still guilty for your sin. Continuing on in verses 3 to 4, we are then given a picture of how, how women should adorn themselves. Adorn themselves. Uh, verse 3, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating or braiding the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So first we should just clear uh, one thing up, depending on what translation you have, it can obscure these things. Uh, this is not forbidding uh, braiding your hair, okay? So if you have braided hair right now, you're not in sin. Uh, if you're wearing jewelry, it, that's okay. Um, those things are not inherently sinful, and we know this because it includes uh, wearing clothes also on this list, and I hope, I hope you're all wearing clothes. Uh, so if you had to say, you know, braided hair, gold jewelry are sinful, you'd also have to say that wearing clothes is sinful, which of course would violate other commands for things like modesty. So what, what is it saying? This is a warning against vanity, vanity which women are very prone to, right? Have you ever seen this thing called Instagram, right? It's, it's, a, it's a vain platform. Uh, and the point here is that a meek and quiet spirit is far more important than clothes or jewelry or whatever you think will make you look beautiful. A woman should spend far more energy on cultivating these virtues of submission than she does on her outward appearance. Otherwise, the best that she can become is Proverbs 11.22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Internal beauty and external appearance are meant to harmonize, but one is fleeting in this life and one remains forever. Scripture says that Abigail was of a beautiful countenance, 1 Samuel 25.3. Scripture says that Esther was fair and beautiful, Esther 2.7. Scripture says that Sarah was very beautiful, Genesis 12.14. These women had an objectively beautiful appearance. And yet, listen to what verse 5 says. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. The most beautiful women in the Bible are the women who adorn themselves with submission, with this meek and quiet spirit. They had an internal beauty that was reflected in their countenance. And that hidden adornment, Scripture says, is most precious, 
most precious in the eyes of God. It is a beauty that can also be cultivated in every circumstance, right? You can't always look good, you know, you can't always look nice externally, but you can always look nice internally. You can cultivate this kind of internal beauty at any time, at every age, and unlike your hair and your clothes, this kind of internal adornment never fades. It is incorruptible. So wives, what are you doing to become more beautiful? Are you following the examples God has given in Scripture? Right? Women tend to think, I am going to attract or win a man by getting dolled up putting on makeup, putting on jewelry, doing my hair, all those things. And Scripture's saying, you know, okay, those things are fine. Don't go, don't go crazy. But the thing that is far more important is this meek and quiet spirit. Are you spending time working on that? So what are you doing to become more beautiful? Are you following the examples God has given in Scripture? Do you trust God? Do you really trust God when he says, Submit. Do you honor your husband, even calling him Lord, as Sarah did? For she knew that by submitting to her husband, she was submitting to the Lord, to God Almighty. And this is how the holy women of old adorned themselves. The last thing we see in verse 6 is that a woman adorns herself when she is not afraid. This is a quality that our culture is really terrible at, right? Women are anxious, women are uh, tightly wound, and scripture says it is beautiful when a woman is fearless. Remember the Proverbs 31 woman, right? She sees the days to come and she laughs at them. She knows that her household is taken care of. She is hardworking and diligent. She has nothing to be afraid of. A woman who is not afraid is adorning herself in the eyes of God. Think about uh, what Peter is saying here. He says that you are Sarah's daughter, if you do this, you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Well, how many daughters did Sarah have? Well, she had none, right? She had none. Sarah had no biological daughters. But God promised that he would make her a mother of nations and kings of peoples would be of her. Genesis 17, 16. And when Christian women follow in her footsteps, when they trust the Lord, when they submit to their husbands and are not afraid, they are called daughters of Sarah, just like we are all called sons of Abraham. This is because Sarah was an heir together with Abraham of the promises of God. And likewise, every Christian husband and wife is an heir together of the grace of life. As Jesus says, there is no marriage in the resurrection. We are told in verse 7, uh, the duties now for the husband. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. There it is, that heirs together section. Here in this verse, we see that God protects the weaker vessel. The husband is commanded to dwell with the wife according to knowledge, to give her honor, this means he is not harsh or overbearing or arbitrary in his authority, but rather he is attentive unto her as he is to his own self. And when a husband abuses this authority, Scripture says that his prayers are hindered. This means either that he no longer prays, and so God doesn't hear, or it means he prays and God refuses to listen. 
In either case, God disciplines husbands who dishonor their wives. And sometimes he even kills them, as he did to Nabal. This is why Peter says in verse 6 that a woman should be unafraid and without terror. Because there's always someone else watching. God is watching. God sees everything. God sees whether there is vanity and bitterness in your heart or a meek and gentle spirit. And what is done in secret, Jesus says, shall be rewarded openly. So obey God in your marriage. Obey God in the hidden man of the heart where no one else can see. I'll close with this. When you became a Christian, you submitted yourself to the Lord. And the Lord Jesus never commands anything for his people that will not be good for them. And that includes wives submitting to your husband, even disobedient husbands. So will you trust that God knows best? Peter knows and anticipates that there will be suffering, that governments will persecute Christians, that masters will abuse servants, and husbands will not love their wives. And he says a few verses later in chapter 3, It is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing rather than for evil-doing. In other words, we're all going to suffer. <laughs> we're all going to suffer at some level. But if you're going to suffer, at least be a righteous sufferer. Be like Jesus, who submitted himself to the Father, who submitted himself to a wicked and corrupt government, who submitted himself to shame and abuse and beating and death, even death on a cross. And by that submission, he won victory for all who will trust in him. And so wives, trust him by submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know how much our culture hates this idea. How it tries to level uh, all the differences between men and women. And God... This abomination in our culture uh, is a pathway to hell. And I ask that you would save us from that. That you would save us as a church from these um, wicked ideas. And that you would save our nation and our culture that has been indoctrinated to think that men and women are interchangeable. That there's nothing particularly unique or special about them. God, have mercy on us as we seek to obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. These elements before us of bread and wine were chosen by Christ to teach us unity. They were chosen to teach us that we need one another and we belong together. You cannot make a loaf of bread using only a single grain of wheat. You cannot make a glass of wine using just one individual, individual grape. There is no sacrament, there is no communion without a multiplicity of saints. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, For we, being many, are one bread. How many grains went into the flour that became this loaf? How many grapes went into the press to become this wine? A lot more than one. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. It is not good for any of us to be alone. And in this meal, we are given a foretaste of heavenly communion, where all the glorified saints shall feast together forever. 
billions upon billions upon billions, and none going hungry, none who are lonely, for God will have wiped away every tear and satisfied the longing of every heart. That is what this meal anticipates. And so eat and drink in hope of those days to come, for they are coming. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Uh, remember that Jesus says we must remove the plank from our own eye if we will see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. And this is especially true in marriage. It's very easily to just point fingers and say, you know, you're not loving me, you're not submitting, and do that back and forth. Don't do that. Whatever shortcomings and sins your spouse might have, start with you and, and just stop there, right? You cannot change your spouse, but you can change you. And that is what God wants you to focus on. So focus on your duty as a husband or wife. Start there. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.